Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Seat, if you would, please. Come on in and have a seat. My name is Chip Tickleman, and I am the host of America's favorite game show, Do It Backwards. Do It Backwards. All right. Thank you. Uh, Here's how the game works. I'm going to call three people up from the crowd. We're going to play a little game. You're going to do some things backwards, all right? So I need um, Carson. Carson, come on up here, if you would, please. I need um, all the way up. Come on up stage. Yep, that'd be great. Um, Let's see. Ben, yeah, come on up, Ben. And then let's go this side of the room. Um, Ryan Skolaski, come on down, Ryan. All right, give it up for our contestants. All right, here's what's going to happen. I am going to tell you to do something backwards, and you're going to do it, all right? You, I'll just explain it as we go. First of all, what's your name? Where are you from? Carson, uh, Washington. Carson from Washington. Give it up, folks. Carson, step right over here. All right, Carson, you are going to, you have 30 seconds, 30 seconds on the clock. We don't actually have a clock. I just came up and decided to do this literally this morning. So uh, we don't have any kind of clock or anything. What? All right, 30 seconds on the clock. Thank you, Heather. Um, You are going to say the alphabet alphabet backwards. All right? No no getting it wrong. First, I guess I should ask, do you know the alphabet forwards? Uh, I think so. Okay, now do you know it backwards? No, no. Okay. Well, you better figure it out quick, because there are 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Do it backwards. Say the alphabet. Go. Z. (laughs) So far, so good. Y. X. (laughs) W. U, V, no? (laughs) I'm not talking to him. Torture. Time check. Ten seconds left. You got a long way to go. U, V, is that right? V, U? (laughs) T, S, R? Time is up. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Carson. She made it maybe a quarter of the way through. You don't win anything. You, you lose. Yeah, go ahead and have a seat. You're, you're done. All right, come on up. Our next contestant, what's your name and what's your uh, social security card and credit card information? Um, ben and uh, two, five. Uh, <laughs> perfect. All right, Ben, here's what you're going to do. You're, how good are you at math? How about let's let's uh, dumb it down a little. How good are you at counting? <laughs> what we're gonna do? You have, I'm gonna say 20 seconds because I'm making up the rules as I go. 20 seconds to count down backwards from 36, but you got to do it by threes. All right, by threes from 36 all the way to zero. Are you ready? Yep. On your mark. 20 seconds. 20 seconds. On your mark. Get set. Go. 36, 33, 30, 27, 24, 21, 18, 15, 12, 9, 6, 3, 0. Woo! Give it up! (laughs) 
Give it up for Ben. Congratulations. You still don't have a prize, but you did great. You won my respect. How's that? All right. And finally, our last contestant. What's your name and what's your uh, middle name? I am uh, Ryan Anderson, and I don't know what my middle name is. Knowles. Your middle name is Knowles, like Beyonce. K-N-O-W-L-E-S. I tell very few people that, but that's your middle name, though. Not mine. It's not mine. All right. All right. Uh, it's a great middle name, by the way. All right. You, sir, are going to describe the steps of making and eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich backwards, all right? So you will, just to give you a hint, you'll start with taking a bite, and then you'll go back to getting stuff out of the cabinet, I guess. And you have uh, 20 seconds to do that. Are you ready? ready. On your mark, get set, go! Uh, take, take a bite, put it back down on the plate. Uh, get the plate out of the cabinet. Toast. <laughs> get some bread. Peanut butter, knife, napkin, you're done. All right. We did it. We forgot to spread anything on anything, but that's not an important part of a sandwich straight out of the jar. You just have a bread sandwich on a napkin and a plate. Congratulations, folks. Give it up for Ryan. Ryan Knowles Anderson. Yes. All right. Hey, she got a prize. Good job. All right. Sorry. I, <laughs> I literally thought of doing that this morning. I thought it'd be fun. Um, hopefully it was. I, I actually, I booked this space on Tuesdays at 10 to run a public access um, game show, and I got my days mixed up. So here we are. All right. We are actually in a series called Backwards. Backwards is the name of our series. Isaac preached last week. Isaac, well done. I appreciated the shout out, even though I wasn't here. Ironically, the last time I preached, it was on the importance of coming to church, and I missed church. Uh, so I'll go back and listen to my own sermon. You should go back and listen to Isaac's sermon last week. Um, if you haven't, it was really, really good. Um, I would love to pray, and we're going to jump into some things today. Jesus, we need you desperately. I need you desperately. I pray that you would speak through me today. Um, we are lost without you. We, in the story of the gospel, we bring the sin, and that's it, and you bring the rest. And yet, you choose us to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of your plan, to bring restoration to this broken world. And so I pray, Lord, that I would do my part today as I share. I pray that I would accurately share your word and encourage my friends and family in this room. And so, uh, that's our prayer today, Jesus. We love you. Amen. So, I am uh, learning to golf. I never golfed for 30 years of my life. Never did any golfing. And now, probably six or so years ago, I picked up golf. And it's fun. I bought golf clubs at a uh, garage sale, and then I slowly... Basically, every Father's Day, I get another golf club or a golf bag or something like that. But golf is brutal. It's very hard. I don't know any golfers in the room, people that are golfers, a couple. Um, it's just like, let's take a tiny little ball and try to put it in a tiny little hole 500 yards away. Good luck. And I am not good at golf. 
um, but I'm learning. And three, four years ago or so, I had the chance to go to the PGA Championship, which is uh, my first and only professional golf tournament I've ever been to. I didn't play in it, just so you know, I watched it. A lot of you were like, wow, that's incredible. In six years, you got... <laughs> I just watched. Um, and I went on Thursday. The way tur golf tournaments, this is a major tournament. There's four majors. This was a big one. Um, I went to the Thursday. So Thursday is the opening round. And then Sunday, they play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday is the championship. Um, and so we went on Thursday. And the, my biggest takeaway was just how big of a star Tiger Woods is. It was unreal. It was it, like, unlike anything I had ever seen in my life. Half, probably half the people or more followed him around, and the other half the people, and there were thousands and thousands of people there, followed all the other golfers. And so he was just like this mega star. And uh, the thing, it was cool to be, I mean, I was 10 feet from Tiger Woods at one point. It was really cool. Um, but the thing about Tiger Woods that strikes me is Thursday is when we went. Wednesday is a practice round. And so in a practice round, um, they just go out and they play a round of golf. They can hit a couple shots. They, they just play around to practice the course and everything. And the thing that strikes me, Tiger Wood, you know, best golfer in the world, arguably, maybe not anymore, but was at one point. Um, he was, he does not hit where the hole is in the practice round. So you got the pin on the back, let's say. And during the practice round, he's hitting the front of the green. And I'm like, why is he not? He's the best golfer in the world. He's just not anywhere close. He's getting it on the green, which is more than I can say for myself. But um, if the hole's on the left, he's hitting it on the right. If the hole's in the front, he's hitting it to the back. Things like that. And so you're just kind of like, I would have thought he could do better. But what you realize is that Tiger Woods is actually hitting it right where he's aiming. Because what he's doing is he's hitting with Sunday's pin placements in mind. He's hitting, he knows that on Sunday, the championship, the most important part of that, he is going to be aiming to the back of the green. And he doesn't care on Wednesday, the practice round, that the pin is in the front because he's aiming for Sunday. He's aiming for where he knows the pin is going to be placed. And I think for us as Christians, the best golfer in the world is preparing and practicing and playing with the end in mind. And I think with us Christians, we got to start living life with the end in mind, keeping the end in mind. As we love people, as we interact with people, as we go to work or school or church, whatever we're doing, we need to keep eternity in mind. And we need to start maybe thinking backwards a little bit. Uh, last week, Isaac, you read the scripture that this series was based upon, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Um, I'm going to read that again because it's an important scripture for this series. Uh, I'm going to read it out of the message version. So here's what it says. Take a look, friends. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. 
that makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. The NIV version puts it this way. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And in my mind, what this says is God does things a little backwards. And if you need any proof that God, God does things backwards, it's this. He has chosen me. He's chosen me to be the husband to Lauren. He has chosen me to be the father to Jet and Foster and Wells. He's chosen me to lead a mission of Youth for Christ. He's chosen me to preach today. Like, God chooses me even though I am so unworthy, and that it's the same could be said for each one of us in this room. He has chosen you for a purpose in spite of our brokenness. Um, I relate to Paul in the Bible very much, but especially, maybe more than ever, in Romans 7, 15 through 20. And as Paul writes to the Romans, he says this. This is confusing. I'm going to try to get it right without stumbling over my words. But he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. That's confusing. That's a tongue twister. That's like Paul acting like Yoda, talking backwards. But it's also me. Like, I am that verse to a T. I want to do good things, and yet I don't. I want, no matter how badly I want to wake up and I want to follow Jesus, I mess it up. 6 a.m., I'm like, I'm in. Jesus, let's do this today. 6.05, I'm like, dang, messed that up. Um, I've turned my back on God, or I've made a selfish decision or something. And Paul, you know, he seemed to have the same problem. Jeremiah 7.24 says it well. He says, um, but my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backward instead of forward. And backward, again, the name of our series, backwards instead of forwards. I want to move forward, but so often it's two steps forward and one step back. Or maybe it's one step forward and two steps back. Or it's whatever it is. It's me having a desire to move forward, and yet back we go for whatever reason. And maybe that's you too in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's one step forward and two steps back. And if that is true, there is good news. It's that the grace of God is more powerful than the sin in your life. The grace of God is more powerful than the sin of your life. And because of that, God chooses you. He pursues you. He chases after you. He comes after us. And he doesn't need to. 
He doesn't need you, but he wants to. He has a desire to. He desires you, and he wants you to play a part in the big God story, kind of like they talk about in kids, the big God story. He wants you to have a role. He wants you to have a purpose. Um, And you don't have to be perfect to nail your role. You don't have to be this perfect person, no matter how bad you are. The good news is that your worst does not disqualify you from the grace of God. And at your best, you're not qualified to be used by God. It's only the work that Jesus did on the cross that qualifies us to be used by God and to play a part in his story. And God, you know, he has a habit of using people with broken pasts for the glory of his kingdom. And messy pasts, messy futures, and probably pretty sketchy presence as well. And so God does that. He uses those things. And so we can even look at the Bible. We can look at the life of Jesus and we can say, look at the people he chose to use and walk alongside him in his ministry. The disciples were frankly a mess. Like they were, they were not the best and the brightest, like Paul said. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. James and John were just fishermen. Peter was a zealot. Like down the list, all these disciples we're just not the best and the brightest. And yet God said, come, follow me. Uh, he, cho- he chose them, but then there's a second piece to it as well. These disciples chosen by Jesus also had to choose Jesus. It was a two-way street. They had to choose him. They had to give something up. They had to give up their livelihood to follow Jesus. They had to stop fishing for fish and start fishing for men like he called them to. Uh, but in that, they knew Jesus is worth it. They knew that when you follow Jesus, you will get back more than you give up, even if you have to give up a lot. They gave up their lifestyle to choose the lifestyle of Jesus, and that's frankly what we're called to do too, give up our own lifestyle to follow the lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to. Um, I'm reading a great book right now, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Katie, I think you're reading it. Lauren loves it. She recommended, strongly recommended slash threatened me if I didn't start reading it. So um, it's, it's really, really good. I enjoy it. It talks a lot about the lifestyle of Jesus or the way of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I feel like we talk about maybe the second two a lot. We don't always talk about the way of Jesus. Um, And when we choose the way of Jesus, we are called to give up the way of this world. And the way of Jesus is very backwards compared to the way of the world. Compared to almost anything else that we will hear in this life, Jesus' way seems backwards. When the world tells us to collect all the money that we can, Jesus tells us to give it away. Very opposite, very backwards. When the world tells us to gain power, Jesus tells us to be humble and submit. And when the world tells us to be happy um, and, and things like that, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn. Like all these things, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't want us to be happy, but just in the things that the world says over and over and over again, Jesus says, let's flip it backwards. And the disciples, like I said, they chose this backwards way of Jesus, even in a world where they knew that they, um, they would be, it would be costing them something 
great. Ten of the twelve disciples died as martyrs. John was the only one who lived into old age, but as he lived into old age, he was on an island, imprisoned, and honestly, not not that great of a situation for him. Uh, and they knew that even though following Jesus meant they could be killed, the way of Jesus was worth it. Uh, Matthew 16 even says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And again, that sounds super backwards. Like, if whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's the most backward statement I've ever heard. It just... That doesn't even make sense as we try to comprehend it in our human minds. Uh, but living the life, living life with the end in mind, with eternity in mind, suddenly that begins to make sense. And so this backward way of Jesus is worth it. And the reason it's worth it, and as Christians we know this, because in the way of Jesus, death is always followed by resurrection. Backwards. Um, I played soccer in high school. Maybe you could tell. I have the body of a soccer player who has not played soccer in several years. And um, my senior year of high school, we, had a, we knew we had a good team. Me and all of these seniors played together since we were really young, fifth or sixth grade. And we knew we were going to have a good team. We had high hopes for like a state, maybe state championship, that kind of thing. Um, and we thought it was going to be our year. And our coach was aware of that, too, and he, so he was ready to push us. And so the first three weeks of the season, our coach decided to have us do two-a-days. Two-a-days are where instead of one a day, one practice a day, you do two, uh, which is brutal. And especially when practice is at 6 a.m. and then 6 p.m., and the 6 a.m. is like mainly conditioning. And so we just ran laps and then we ran hills, and then we ran more laps, and we ran bigger hills, and we ran a hill with somebody on your back, um, which tore up your calves real bad, especially when you're the smallest on the team, and you're supposed to get someone your same size, but that person doesn't exist, and so <laughs> it's, it was brutal. Um, but several weeks into the season, it began to make sense because... We were, we were winning games, and in the second half of games, we were clearly better conditioned than other teams. Like, we, these other teams would run out of gas, and we could still go. We were still full of energy. And so those two-a-days were very uncomfortable for us. They were an uncomfortable uh, preparation for a much more comfortable destination during the regular season. And the way of Jesus isn't always comfortable, but the destination will be very comfortable. Our eternity with Jesus, when heaven comes to earth, that is going to make the preparation here on earth in this messy, broken world that's not very comfortable, it's going to make it well worth it. And Isaac, Isaac, you even talked about it last week. You said the temporal things of this world have the possibility to have eternal value. That's a paraphrase. But um, the idea is that the good things in this world, the, the holy things, the things with eternal value will last and the rest will be uh, lost. And so for me, that's encouraging, but it's also there's something in me that says, but what if I don't have that? <laughs> what if, am I good enough? Will I last into eternity? 
Will the ones I love, will the things I do last until eternity? And what I need to convince myself of is that when Jesus touches something, he gives it eternal value. When Jesus touches something, he gives it eternal value. Um, Something that may have no value to the rest of the world. They look at it and they see no value. Jesus, suddenly it has value when Jesus enters the picture. Uh, And we see it time and time again in the Bible. Someone that is lost and overlooked, someone that's completely cast aside by the world, Jesus comes in and gives them value. Jesus stepped into the lives of the, the disciples, like I said, a few fishermen. He stepped into their lives and he made them eternity changers, changed the course of the world and eternity. Jesus stepped into the world of a prostitute and changed her eternity. Jesus stepped into the world of a leper, someone totally cast aside from the world, and he gives him eternal value. Matthew 8, 1 through 3 says this. This is the story of Jesus' interaction with a leper. Um, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And so if we think of that in the context of first century Jewish culture, a leper is, leprosy was a skin disease. It was a disgusting disease that they thought was super contagious. Your skin would rot and it would peel away from your body and the tips of your fingers and your toes would fall off. And people were terrified of this. And because of this, because they were so scared of it, they made all kinds of rules for lepers. And if you are a leper, you are an absolute outcast from society. This particular man, his eyes probably would have been welled shut. Um, He would have had open and dripping sores on his body. His fingers likely would have fallen off. He probably would have been wearing wraps and uh, bandages and clothes to um, cover up sores and things like that. And he would have had to completely stay away from people. And if, if somebody was coming toward him on the street, he would have had to shout, raise his hands and shout, unclean, I'm unclean. And when he would die, his possessions and his house and his body, they would all be burned. He got none of the um, ceremonial things that somebody else might get who didn't have leprosy. And so total outcast from the world. And yet on this day, he yells out, unclean, I'm unclean. And everyone scatters except Jesus. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he begs Jesus to heal him. The leper says, if it is your will, heal me and make me clean. And that if, if it is your will, your will, the word for that means your deepest desire. Jesus, if it's your deepest desire, make me clean. And Jesus says, it is. And he heals him. But he doesn't just heal him. He reaches out. He approaches him. He touches the leper. And he could have healed him, snapped his fingers. He could have done anything. But Jesus chooses to touch the outcast. He chooses to touch the unclean. And uh, when Jesus sees a prostitute caught in adultery or when he sees the, the dirtiest and messiest of sinners, when he looks at our, 
our broken and messed up world and sinners all around him, his will, his deepest desire is to reach out and to touch us, to come alongside us and touch us. He moves toward us, not away from us. He moves toward you and he pursues you and he wants to touch you even in your mess. And Another good book I've read recently, uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. I highly recommend that one, too. He talks about this. He says, in the Old Testament, the solution for uncleanness was not taking a bath, but it was offering a sacrifice. And the problem wasn't the dirt. It was the guilt. It was the sin. And the Old Testament Jews, they had this crazy system of being unclean and then offering a guilt offering or a sin offering or a burnt offering for being unclean. And that some kind of offering would then make them clean once more. But the crazy part of this whole offering system is that uh, when an unclean person, morally unclean, who has not done the sacrifice, when they come in contact with a clean person, then the clean person is now also unclean. The dirtiness, the moral dirtiness was contagious. And then you have Jesus the, the cleanest of clean, the clean one who never sinned and never needed a sacrifice because he, he was clean. He never was morally dirty at all. He was the epitome of clean, Mr. Clean. Before Mr. Clean was Mr. Clean. Um, when Jesus is in the presence of the unclean, he reaches out and touches it. He moves towards it, and he spends time with it. And he sits and eats with it. But Jesus, in this Old Testament Jewish system, he took that cleanliness system of sacrifice for cleanliness, and he kind of reversed it. Because when Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, he didn't become unclean, but the sinner became clean. And so a backward system that the Jews were so used to, and yet... He chooses to reach out and touch, and he chooses to reverse it. He chooses to make it backwards. And so he makes a unclean clean rather than unclean making him also unclean. Um, And Jesus is actually even closer to us now than he was to this leper when he reaches out and touches him. We are closer to him now than the leper ever was because we are his body, his spirit lives in us. He is in us. We're not just able to be touched by Jesus, but he lives in us, his spirit. We are his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, now you are the body of Christ. And so if Jesus did that for sinners, if he reached out and touched them and we are his body, then we are called to do that same thing. We're called to go towards sinners. We're called to go toward the unclean. Our son Jet is five. He is just graduated preschool the other day, which was fun to watch. But Jet is now showing an interest in basketball. Uh, we have a little hoop downstairs, and we got him a little basketball, and we're trying to play, and I'm trying to teach him, and he's just like diving on the ball and kicking the ball, and I, frankly, he's bad at basketball. He's just not good. I'm trying hard to teach him. Um, he wouldn't. He was traveling. He wouldn't pass the ball. Very frustrating, but uh, I realize, you know, I he's not just going to get this. I have to teach him 
to play basketball. And so um, first things first, let's learn to shoot. And so I grab the ball, and I show him how to hold it, and I tell him, okay, Jet, just do what I do. Put your hand here, do this, shoot. My jump shot is probably not the greatest for him, but it's better than his. Um, so I say, just do what I do. And he does it, and he's closer, much better. And then we learn to dribble, and I say, just do what I do. Like, put your hand here on the ball, start low, do this. And so he tries to do it, and he's getting closer. He's getting better. And all of a sudden, he can kind of dribble, and he can make some shots here and there, and he's not horrible at basketball anymore. And that's because I said, Jet, just do what I do. And I showed him. Galatians 2.20 says this, Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. And so Jesus is saying, just do what I do. And we make it super complicated sometimes, but Jesus is just saying, just do what I do. If we want to live the way of Jesus, we do what Jesus did. Just do what I do. When we see messiness, we move towards it. When we see suffering, we step into it. When we see pain, we approach it with gentleness. Whatever Jesus did, we are called to do that too. And uh, I'm obviously making it much easier than it sounds. Jesus shed his blood for us, and I'm not even willing to donate blood when the blood mobile comes into town. I had a bad experience one time. I, I didn't even, it didn't even, it wasn't the needle in the arm, it was the finger prick. Like, they do this thing where they just start weirdly massaging your finger to get the blood to the tip, take a torture device and stab you with it until you bleed, and it's a long story, but long story short, my vision went blurry, and I, my ears started, wah, 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 like I was getting an MRI or something, and then all of a sudden, I wake up, and I'm looking at the lights, and there's like five nurses around me, and at some point, saving another person's life is just not worth it, and for me, it's a finger prick. Anyway, the, I didn't mean to tell that part, but the point is, the point is, is that we will fail. Like, Jesus shed his blood. We're not, we're not quite there. I don't think. When we fail, because we will, Jesus meets us with grace and not condemnation. In his interaction with the woman caught in adultery, he says, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And the order there is pretty important. I do not condemn you. He leads with grace. And then the truth comes. Both are important. Uh, even in that interaction, the men who are going to throw stones at the woman, they see this woman as evil. They see her as bad. She did something bad. Uh, she's the villain. But Jesus did not see it that way. And in fact, when I read the Bible, I don't think Jesus sees people as good versus bad. It's easy for us to see the world as good versus bad, but I don't think Jesus saw it that way. Um, my, whenever me and the boys wrestle, like, which is every night, in fact, it was even this morning before church, um, I'm always the bad guy. I don't know why. They are the Paw Patrol, and I'm Mayor Humdinger, or they're, they're the PJ Masks, and I have to be Luna Girl, and in the process of wrestling, I take a beating 
no matter what. I still think I have bruised ribs from like a solid front kick that Jet landed on me the other day. Most people would have tapped out, but not me. <laughs> not Luna Girl. I am not tapping out. Um, but the world sees us as good versus bad. You sin, you're bad. You don't sin, you're good. But I don't think that's how Jesus sees the world. I think Jesus sees the world as humble versus proud. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As Jesus is being crucified, the man next to him on the cross is a bad guy. He's bad. In the good versus bad, he's bad. He even admits it himself. He says, we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes, but this man, Jesus, did nothing wrong. And then he goes on to say, remember me when you enter your kingdom. A self-admitted bad guy, but humbling himself in front of Jesus. Not proud, but humble. And Jesus doesn't say, nope, sorry, you are a bad guy. You should have done better. What Jesus says is, today you will be with me in heaven. And we see it over and over again in the Bible. Someone that the world sees as bad humbles themselves before God, and then suddenly they're celebrated. Jesus himself tells the story of the prodigal son, a guy who goes out and blows his father's money on women and drinking and does bad things, but then suddenly realizes his mistakes, and he humbles himself, and he's celebrated for it. A feast is thrown. And it happens to Zacchaeus, and it happens to Noah, and it happens to David, and it happens to a long, long list of other biblical heroes. Jesus makes it clear. The Pharisees are the ones who seem to have, that he seems to have the biggest gripe with. They're the proud. It's not because they're bad. In fact, in some people's eyes, they were good. They were the good guys. And yet, Jesus has the biggest gripe with them because they're proud, and they're not humble. The way of Jesus demands that we lay down our pride and humble ourselves. And if we're not doing that, then we're fooling ourselves about the relationship with Jesus that we have. Not good versus bad. It's proud versus humble. And as people who follow Jesus, it should be clear that we follow Jesus. And it starts there. It starts with a lack of pride and a presence of humility. But it doesn't end there. There's more to it. Um, I'm married. I've been married to Lauren for eight years. Lauren is great. I love her. There she is. They say you marry your best friend. And for me, that was Keith Brown in third grade. But I love Lauren. And she, I love her. And if you know me, you know my wife. You hear about her all the time. You probably know what she likes. You know what she does for a living. You hear stories about her from up here or elsewhere, and it's because I love her. It's because I can't stop talking about her. I, um, I think people I work with are like, shut up about your stupid, cute family. They're, they're really cute, and I'm like, sorry, I love them. I can't stop talking about them. And so if you know me, you know my boys, and you know my wife, and if you know me, I hope you know Jesus because I can't stop talking about him. And it's something that just kind of flows through me. And instead of 
telling a story or I'm talking to someone, having a conversation, and I say, um, hey, that reminds me about something Foster did the other day. He choked on a Lego or something like that. Instead of that, I say, hey, that reminds me of Jesus. Because Jesus stepped into the world of an unclean leper and he touched him. And so Jesus just kind of flows through me. And when we do this, when we live Jesus, and when we live the lifestyle of Jesus, and we choose this backwards, mixed up, the world says one thing, but I do the other because Jesus did it that way, kind of life, we can change the world. And maybe it sounds audacious, but I want to change the world. Even if it's just one person's world, I want to change the world. I want people to think back five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road and be like, you remember Ryan? I don't remember much about him. He used to talk about his wife a lot. He did that stupid game show thing at church one time. You remember Lauren? She shot our wedding. We had a we had a wedding. She was our wedding photographer. You remember uh, Dave and Ilea? They used to sing those songs. You remember Peyton and Dalton? They did that youth group thing we were a part of. Remember Holly? She was really good at soccer. You remember Isaac? He used to talk about the human body all the time. Remember Sarah? She ran that coffee shop. You remember Andy? He did JFL stuff. You remember Pat? I think he worked on cabinets or something. I don't remember much about them. But something was different about them. And I now, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, now I know what it was. It's that they loved Jesus. It made them kinder. It made them gentler. It made me want to be around them. And honestly, being around them changed me. Something about them changed me. And they changed me because of the way they followed Jesus. They didn't tell me how much I needed Jesus. They told me how much they needed Jesus. And it changed me. Now imagine if we had a whole church of people like that. A church of people committed to walking beside each other, walking this backwards way of Jesus, a church of people committed to stepping towards the unclean instead of running from the unclean, a church that wasn't shaped by the world, but was shaped by the word. Jesus, let that be this church. Start with this church. Let that be the church in America. Let that be the church of Peoria. That's what I want Let me pray. Jesus, we admit that we haven't always been willing to make the sacrifice you ask for us to follow you. We follow the world at times. We follow our own desires at times. We aren't always willing to do that backwards thing that you call us to. And Lord, I pray that today would be a day marked with us choosing to do things backwards. Not backwards according to what you say, but backwards according to what the world might tell us. 
and that we would choose to do the things that you call us to. And when we don't, when we choose our own way or when we choose the way of the world, Jesus, I pray that we would rest in the fact that there is grace and that what you did on the cross was enough. And so that we don't need to be perfect in this, but we do need to have faith. Lord, my prayer, even for this church, would not necessarily be success, but it would be faithfulness. I pray that we would be faithful to the things that you call us to. And Lord, we need you for that. We trust you with that. We pray, God, that you would uh, hold our hands as we walk this messy life and try to figure out how to follow you. And I pray that we'd come alongside each other in grace and humility. And I pray against pride in my own life, pride in the lives of others. I pray for only humility, Jesus. A humility that says, God, none of this is because of me, but it's all because of you. And we trust you in that, Jesus. And we uh, are grateful, God, that you have called us to this mission, called us to this life. We love you and we trust you and we pray this in your name. Amen.